Chapter Eighteen of the Sign of Silence by William LeCue. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Eighteen discloses the trap. The woman's words held me speechless. She seemed so cold, so determined, so certain of her facts that I felt when I came to consider what I already had proved that she was actually telling me the ghastly truth. And yet I loved Frida. No, I refused to allow my suspicions to be increased by this woman who had approached the police openly and asked for payment for her information. She was Frida's enemy, therefore it was my duty to treat her as such, and in a moment I had decided upon my course of action. "'So I am to take it that both Digby and yourself are antagonistic towards Frida Shand?' I exclaimed, leaning against the round mahogany table and facing her. She did not speak for a few seconds, then springing to her feet, exclaimed, "'Would you excuse me for a few seconds? I forgot to give an order to my servant who was just going out.' And she bustled from the room, leaving me alone with my own confused thoughts. Ah, the puzzling problem was maddening me. In my investigations, I now found myself in a cul-de-sac from which there seemed no escape. The net, cleverly woven without a doubt, was slowly closing about my poor darling, now so pale and anxious and trembling. Had she not already threatened to take her own life at first sign of suspicion being cast upon her by the police? Was that not in itself, alas, a sign that her secret was a guilty one? I knew not what to do or how to act. I suppose my hostess had been absent for about five minutes when the door suddenly reopened and she entered. When we were interrupted, Mrs. Petrie, I said, as she advanced towards me, I was asking you a plain question. Please give me a plain reply. You and Frida Shand are enemies, are you not? Well, we are not exactly friends, she laughed. After all that has occurred, I think I told you that in London. I remember all that you told me, I replied but I want to know the true position, if whether we are friends or enemies. For myself it matters not. I will be your friend with just as great a satisfaction as I will be your enemy. Now let us understand each other. I have told you I am a man of business. The woman, clever and resourceful, smiled sweetly, and in a calm voice replied, Really, Mr. Royal, I don't see why, after all, we should be enemies, that is, if what you tell me is the positive truth that you owe my friend Digby no ill-will. I owe no man ill-will until his perfidy is proved, was my reply. I merely went to Brussels to try and find him and request an explanation. He charged me with a mission which I discharged with the best of my ability, but which it seems has only brought upon me a grave calamity, the loss of the one I love. Hence I am entitled to some explanation from his own lips which I promise you that you shall have in due course, so rest assured upon that point, she urged. But that is in the future. We are, however, discussing the present. By the way, you'll take something to drink, won't you? No, thank you, I protested. But you must have something. I'm sorry I have no whiskey to offer you, but I have some rather decent port. And disregarding my repeated protests, she rang the bell, whereupon the young man who had admitted me whom I now found, to my surprise, to be a servant, entered and bowed. "'Bring some pork,' his mistress ordered. And a few moments later he reappeared with a decanter and glasses upon a silver tray. She poured me out a glass, but refused to have any herself. "'No, no,' she laughed. "'At my time of life port wine would only make me fat. 
and heaven knows i'm growing horribly stout now you don't know mr royle what horror we women have of stoutness in men it is a sign of ease and prosperity in women it is suggestive of alcoholism and puts ten years on their ages out of politeness i raised my glass to her and drank her demeanour had altered and we were now becoming friends a fact which delighted me for i saw i might by the exercise of a little judicious diplomacy act so as to secure protection for frida while we were chatting i suddenly heard the engine of my taxi started and the clutch put in with a jerk why i exclaimed surprised i believe that's my taxi going away i hope the man isn't tired of waiting no i think it is my servant i phoned a cab for her as i want her to take a message into colchester mrs petrie replied then settling herself in the big chair she asked now why can't we be friends mr royle that i am only too anxious to be i declare it is only your absurd infatuation for frida shen that prevents you she said ah she sighed how grossly that girl has deceived you i bit my lip my suspicions were surely bitter enough without the sore being reopened by this woman had not frida's admissions been a self-condemnation to which even though loving her as fervently as i did i could not altogether blind myself i did not speak my heart was too full and strangely enough my head seemed swimming but certainly not on account of the wine i had drunk for i had not swallowed more than half the glass contained the little room seemed to suddenly become stifling yet that woman with the dark eyes seemed to watch me intently as i sat there watch me with a strange deep evil glance an expression of fierce animosity which even at that moment she could not conceal she had openly avowed that the hand of my well-beloved had killed the unknown victim because of jealousy well when i considered all the facts calmly and deliberately her words certainly seemed to bear the impress of truth frida had confessed to me that rather than face inquiry and condemnation she would take her own life was not that in itself sufficient evidence of guilt but no i strove to put such thoughts behind me my brain was a whirl nay even a flame for gradually there crept over me a strange uncanny feeling of giddiness such as i had never before experienced a faint sinking feeling as though the chair was giving way beneath me i don't know why but i'm feeling rather unwell i remarked to my hostess surely it could not be due to my overwrought senses and my strained anxiety for frida's safety oh perhaps it's the heat of the room the woman replied this place gets unpleasantly warm at night you'll be better in a minute or two no doubt i'll run and get some smelling salts it is really terribly close in here and rising quickly she left me alone i remember that instantly she had disappeared a red mist gathered before my eyes and with a fearful feeling of asphyxiation i struggled violently and fell back exhausted into my chair while my limbs grew suddenly icy cold though my brow was burning to what could it be due i recollect striving to think to recall facts to reason within myself but in vain my thoughts were so confused that grim weird shadows and grotesque forms arose within my imagination scenes ludicrous and tragic wildly fantastic and yet horrible were conjured up in my disordered brain and with them all pains excruciating pains which shot through from the sockets of my eyes to the back of my skull inflicting upon me tortures indescribable i set my teeth in determination not to lose consciousness beneath the strain and my eyes were fixed upon the wall opposite 
I remember now the exact pattern of the wallpaper, a design of pale blue trellis work with crimson rambler roses. I suppose I must have remained in that position, sunk into a heap in the chair for fully five minutes, though to me it seemed hours when I suddenly became conscious of the presence of persons behind me. I tried to move, to turn and look, but found that every muscle in my body had become paralyzed. I could not lift a finger, neither would my lips articulate any sound other than a gurgle when I tried to call out. And yet I remained in a state of consciousness, half blotted out by those weird fantastic and dreamy shapes, due apparently to the effect of that wine upon my brain. Had I been deliberately poisoned? The startling truth flashed across my mind just as I heard a low stealthy movement behind me. Yes, I was helpless there in the hands of my enemies. I, wary as I believed myself to be, had fallen into a trap cunningly prepared by that clever woman who was Digby's accomplice. I now believed all that Edwards had told me of the man's cunning and his imposture, how that he had assumed the identity of a clever and renowned man who had died so mysteriously in South America. Perhaps he had killed him. Who could tell? as these bitter thoughts regarding the man whom i had looked upon as a friend flitted through my brain i saw to my amazement standing boldly before me the woman petri with two men one a dark-bearded beetle-browed middle-aged man of hindu type a half-caste probably while the other was the young man who had admitted me the hindu bent until his scraggy whiskers almost touched my cheek looking straight into my eyes with keen intent gaze but without speaking I saw that the young man had carried a small deal-box about eighteen inches square, which he had placed upon the round mahogany table in the center of the room. This table the woman pushed towards my chair until I was seated before it, but she hardly gave me a glance. I tried to speak, to inquire the reason of such strange proceedings, but it seemed that the drug which had been given me in that wine had produced entire muscular paralysis. I could not move, neither could I speak. My brain was on fire and swimming, yet I remained perfectly conscious, horrified to find myself so utterly and entirely helpless. The sallow-faced man, in whose black eyes was an evil murderous look, and upon whose thin lips there played a slight but triumphant smile, took both my arms and laid them straight upon the table. I tried with all my power to move them, but to no purpose. As he placed them, so they remained. Then for the first time the woman spoke, and addressing me said in a hard, harsh tone, You are Digby's enemy, and mine, Mr. Royal. Therefore you will now see the manner in which we treat those who endeavor to thwart our ends. You have been brave, but your valor has not availed you much. The secret of Digby Kemsley is still a secret, and will ever be a secret, she added in a slow, meaning voice. And as she uttered those words, the half-bred Indian, took my head in his hands, and forced my body forward until my head rested upon the table between my outstretched arms. Again I tried to raise myself, and to utter protest, but only a low gurgling escaped my parched lips. My jaws were set, and I could not move them. Ah, the situation was the strangest in which I have ever found myself in all my life. Suddenly, while my head lay upon the polished table, I saw the Hindu put a short double-reed pipe to his mouth, and next instant the room was filled with weird, shrill music, while at the same moment he unfastened the side of the little box and let down the hinged flap. 
Again the native music sounded more shrill than before, while the woman and the young manservant had retreated backward towards the door, their eyes fixed upon the mysterious box upon the table. I, too, had my eyes upon the box. Suddenly I caught sight of something within, and next second held my breath, realizing the horrible torture that was intended. I lay there helpless, powerless to draw back and save myself. Again the sounds of the pipe rose, and then died away slowly in a long, drawn-out wail. My eyes were fixed upon that innocent-looking little box in horror and fascination. Ah, something had moved again within. I saw it, saw it quite plainly. I tried to cry out, to protest, to shout for help, but in vain. Surely this woman's vengeance was indeed a fiendish and relentless one. My face was not more than a foot away from the mysterious box, and when I fully realized in my terror what was intended, I think my brain must have given way. I became insane. End of chapter 18. Recording by Tom Weiss. Tom's Audiobooks dot com.